Good morning. Let us start today's worship with number 433, Near to the Heart of God. Call to worship this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Call to worship is from Psalm 32. Happy the man whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put away. Happy is a man when the Lord lays no guilt to his account, and in his spirit there is no deceit. While I refused to speak, my body wasted away with moaning all day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. The sap in me dried up as in summer drought. Then I declared my sin. I did not conceal my guilt. I said, with sorrow... 
I will confess my disobedience to the Lord. Then thou didst remit the penalty of my sin. So every faithful heart shall pray to thee in the hour of anxiety. When great floods threaten, thou art a refuge for me from distress so that it cannot touch me. Thou dost guard me and enfold me in salvation beyond all reach of harm. I will teach you and guide you in the way you should go. I will keep you under my eye. Do not behave like horse or mule, unreasoning creatures whose course must be checked with bit and bridle. Many are the torments of the ungodly, but unfailing love enfolds him who trusts in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous men, and sing aloud, all men of a bright heart. All right. Well, that psalm um, first spoke to me in, in 1989. I, I think it's become one of my five favorite psalms. Um, not because it's so wonderful, it's pretty convicting, but we need that. But going through all of the confession, it's the Lord's steadfast love that holds us in the end, and we can experience that, and it's a gift, a free gift from God. So let's continue to worship the Lord with number 299, Amazing Grace. It's all of grace. Grace at all. 
John Newton wrote at least three more verses uh, to that song, and if you can find an Anglican hymn book, you'll get at least two of those. Well, let us pray. Father, we thank you that we get to gather here this morning to worship you. Uh, I'm confessing that that it's hot and it's not comfortable, but that's okay. Um, You are in charge and you are here And we just want to focus on you this morning. So we pray that you would block out any distractions that we have, that you would put a shield of protection over us and in us by your Holy Spirit so that we can focus totally on you. We can commune with you in every way, not just with the sacrament, but also with the word and singing and prayer. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake and for his glory because he is our all in all. Amen. And now, uh, if you will take uh, your bulletin inserts and um, at the beginning of them, we have our prayer of confession and let's confess together in unison using the words of King David. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, 
and sinners will turn back to you. Amen. And seeing that phrase, whiter than snow, some three centuries after this, the Lord inspired Isaiah to say, though your sins be crimson, they shall be as white as snow. And 11 centuries after this, the Apostle John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So knowing now that we have been cleansed by our sins from confession and the blood of Jesus, um, let us sing number uh, 175, Break Thou the Bread of Life. take that song as a warning. It's not enough to have all of scripture memorized if we're not experiencing God and his presence in our lives and allowing him to change us so we live according to his word. And now let us hear from his word. 
The first reading is from Luke 11, 2 to 4. He answered, When you pray, say, Father, thy name be hallowed, thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we too forgive all who have done us wrong, and do not bring us to the test. And the second reading is from Luke 7, 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at table. A woman who was living an immoral life in the town had learned that Jesus was at table in the Pharisee's house and had brought him oil of myrrh in a small flask. She took her place behind him by his feet, weeping. His feet were wetted with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the myrrh. When his host, the Pharisee, saw this, he said to himself, If this fellow were a real prophet, he would know who this woman is that touches him and what sort of woman she is, a sinner. Jesus took him up and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Speak on, Master, said he. Two men were in debt to a moneylender. One owed him 500 silver pieces, the other 50. As neither had anything to pay to pay with, he let them both off. Now, which will love him most? Simon replied, I should think the one that was let off most. You are right, said Jesus. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, You see this woman? I came to your house. You provided no water for my feet, but this woman has made my feet wet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has been kissing my feet ever since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with myrrh. And so I tell you, her great love proves that her many sins have been forgiven. Where little has been forgiven, little love is shown. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to ask themselves, who is this that he can forgive sins? But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let us go now to God in prayer. Whew. 
God our Father, thank you for the forgiveness you offer to everyone as a gracious gift for the work your Son did for us on the cross as he took our sins on himself to offer us not only forgiveness, but also his righteousness. Both the last Apostle Paul and the beloved Apostle John put this truth in letters they wrote to first century churches. Thank you also that when we receive and experience your forgiveness from your love for us, that it leads us to loving you more and more and increasingly enables us to love and forgive our neighbors with your love. And to this end, we pray for our town, our state, our nation, and the world. And now I'm going to get personal and ask you to please forgive me for being like Simon the Pharisee when it comes to the issue of life, life at all ages, and especially this issue of abortion. It's too easy to judge self-righteously. And I'm so glad you let me hear a pro-life senator yesterday say something I needed to hear. I know he's from the Deep South, and he was up in New York City, and he heard an interview with four workers from Planned Parenthood, and they were actually weeping that they could no longer love women by giving them abortions. We might call them ignorant, and you discount ignorance as an excuse for those that are above a certain age. But these women were genuinely grieved that they could not love women according to almost 50 years of Roe v. Wade ruling in our country. And these people need your love through us, not our self-righteousness. Also, COVID and inflation kind of feel like two of the four horsemen. And we may wonder if these are from your measure of discipline on our nation as a whole. We could metaphorically say it's your shepherd's rod of discipline. And if this is so, we pray that you would extend, you would extend and many people would yield to your staff, your staff of salvation to be taken out of the ditch of briars and brambles that we have fallen into as a nation. So forgive our lazy, half-hearted, and perhaps even ignorant attempts at disciple-making and empower us in the love of the Holy Spirit to make disciples according to the word of Jesus. And we pray for our church family we again remember the families of Norma, Nancy, and Joe. Father, we're praying for Christine. And would you please send the Holy Spirit to wash over her and deep within her with your love and your strength. Please be with Allie and Ginny and let them recover quickly 
so they can be with us next week. We pray also that you would speak to each of us personally by your word and that you would also convict us where we need it. And please help us to change so we may do your will. We pray also for Al and Carol, Noel and Darren. And finally, we pray for our receiving of the sacrament of the body and blood of Jesus, our Savior. And now we come together. We've already heard it from the gospel according to Luke with the words that Jesus taught his followers to pray from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, praying with one heart and one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now before we go uh, deep, deeper into the word of God, let's sing number 133, I Then Shall Live. It's great music with good lyrics by Gloria Gaither.
Amen. There's not much more to say after that. Well, this is the final week of our looking at the prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray according to the Gospel of Luke. And as I noted the first week, it is different from, it is shorter than the prayer he taught in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. But there are some general truths for both prayers and for the one in Luke. Okay. The first half of the prayer begins, Father. Father, our Father, and Matthew. And this is because we are addressing God as Father to reestablish our intimate relationship with the perfect Father. That's who God is. So after this, followers of the Father's Son, they bring two strong petitions in Luke. There was an extra one in Matthew. But first, that they and all people on earth must recognize the Father's holiness and worship him for being righteous and always acting in full and pure righteousness. And then second, all must be requesting that his kingdom will be fully established on earth. And then continuing on in Luke's version, in the second half of the prayer, and this is true of both versions, God's children, followers of Jesus, present requests on their own behalf. God's children in his son most importantly are petitioning that they must be forgiven for all they have done, which is falling short of the standard of God's holiness. And then they also ask for their physical necessities and their spiritual wholeness. Now, more specifically... Jesus' followers are to implore the Father to forgive their sins. And I like the way the New English Bible said it. It may not be the most accurate word-for-word translation of the Greek, but I think it's the essence of what God is teaching here. They add, because they also themselves are now able to practice forgiving everyone who is indebted to them. And I'll go on a little bit more with this. Um, This is a miracle, okay? Let's not miss this. You talk about miracles. This is a miracle with a capital M that being forgiven of our sins by Father God What happens? All who have experienced, and that's why I'm emphasizing experience, not just knowing in our heads, but we have experienced his forgiveness. 
then we are continually enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to forgive others. But those who have not received God's forgiveness at an experiential level struggle to forgive others. Returning back, though, all who have experienced forgiveness and have been forgiven understand this, that our human forgiveness is the fruit of God's forgiveness of us. And so to this end, Jesus told a parable to a Pharisee that linked being forgiven of a great debt by God Um, that is linked with how much we love God. So now let us look at the circumstances, the circumstances that led to Jesus giving this parable, the details of the parable, and how Jesus pointedly applied this parable to a Pharisee and let us also be motivated by this parable of Jesus. Now, I've been using the narrative lectionary for 11 months, and it finally occurred to me this morning that a story, being told a story and envisioning it in our heads, is like watching a play. And we could even say a morality play. So this play has two acts, each act with two scenes. And we can sum up act one this way. As Jesus eats with a Pharisee, a sinful woman ministers to him um, that upsets Simon, his host. So Jesus tells him a parable. Scene one, while Jesus is eating at a Pharisee's house, a sinful woman ministers to Jesus' feet with perfume while weeping. But the Pharisee who invited him is scandalized. Now, that's my word. That's not literal translation from the Greek. So the first verse is the setting of our play. And the whole play happens in this place. Here's the setting. One of the Pharisees was asking him to eat dinner with him. And having gone to the Pharisee's house, and I think this is the better translation for the first century, he was reclined at the table. Well, why would he say, why would the narrator say, why would the Holy Spirit say reclined? Well, you need to understand first century Middle Eastern eating and feasts. In fact, I have read that even today, many people in the Middle East eat like this. The table's on the floor. Sometimes it's nothing more than a carpet spread on the floor. And all the people that eat, they are lying on their side. Now, I'm right-handed, which means I would be on my left side, leaning on my left elbow to have my upper body uplifted, and then I would be able to reach 
with my right hand and take food off the table and receive bread as it was passed or whatever. And the feet would be pointing out. So you've got a big circle of people, all of them on their sides with their feet pointing out from the table. That's why it said Jesus reclined. They didn't have high tables. They didn't have chairs, which we're used to. Okay, So we need to understand that. Now the story begins, and we're told, behold, and it's important, we should be translating that word. A woman who had been living a sinful life in that town had known he was eating at the Pharisee's house. Now, the word literally uses the root hamartia, which means sin. But in reality, she was a prostitute. And just think about that. She would have been shunned by the men who were embarrassed that they may have been her clients and hated by women for stealing their men. She was a total outcast. But somehow she knew where Jesus was eating. The word for learned is the word for knowledge, epigenosko. So she knew he was eating and she came to him. Well, the narration continues without missing a beat. Having brought an alabaster jar of perfume and having stood behind him at his feet, weeping tears, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So there's three preliminaries setting us up for what's really happening here. First, we're told she bought brought a stone jar of myrrh. Now, I I looked up the word in my Greek lexicon, and I guess alabaster is some kind of of a stone that can be made into a flask. And, And correctly, it wasn't perfume, it was myrrh. But myrrh is a form of perfume. Secondly, then she stood behind him at his feet which would have been extended away from the table, so that would be how anybody would be approached at their feet. But she didn't go beyond this boundary. And then thirdly, we're told she is weeping. And then the action begins to pick up. It says, after showing her respect for him and weeping, now this is my interpretation, But I believe she was weeping over her way of life because already she knew that she was in the wrong and was offending God by her life. She began to wash the feet of Jesus. Going back to the narrative, and with the hair of her head, she was wiping and she was kissing his feet and she was pouring the perfume on them. So now we have three. I'm calling these ongoing ministries, okay? This didn't just happen in a minute or two minutes or five minutes. She took her time. She ministered to Jesus. The feet that she had already wet with her tears upon entering, she is wiping clean with her hair. And then she kisses the feet that she was standing behind. And finally, she pours the perfume on Jesus' feet from the alabaster jar she brought. And I am believing that this shows a repentant heart. 
All she was doing for Jesus here came from a heart filled with hope. And this hope was expressing itself and expressing a gratitude for all she had already heard about Jesus. She had heard about his love for people, especially people who are brought low by their sins and their mistakes. And if that described anybody, it described this prostitute. So continuing on, but the Pharisee, having seen, is saying to himself, if this man is being a prophet and he's knowing what kind of woman she is, she touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, Sometimes I've had teachers read my lips. I don't know what was happening here, but Jesus is omnipotent. So this Pharisee is convinced in his own mind that no prophet would ever accept being ministered to by a prostitute. And so he's telling himself, therefore, Jesus is no prophet. That's the end of scene one. Scene two picks up immediately with Jesus addressing the Pharisee. We find out he's named Simon. And he's telling him of two men who had large and small debts forgiven. And then he asks Simon, who will love this money lender more? So let's turn back to the narration as we have received it. Having answered, and I believe this is the Pharisee's doubts. We're not told everything Jesus said, but he probably said, you're doubting I'm a prophet? I am, okay? Then Jesus says to him, Simon, I am having something to tell thee. And he, teacher, thou must sell. Tell. Thou must tell, and he is saying. So notice how Jesus immediately initiates something, okay? Simon's wrong, he's out of control, and immediately, without even, you know, Simon knowing what's going on, he thinks he's keeping it to himself, Jesus jumps in and he discerns Simon's faulty understanding and begins to address it. Not Five minutes later, right on the spot. And here he continues and tells Simon, two men were being debtors to a certain money lender. One was owing 500 denarii. And remember, a denarii is a day's wages over a year's wages. And the other 50, not quite a couple of months. But um, neither of them having to pay back. So that means they had no means. They couldn't pay the debts. They were stuck. To both, both, he canceled the debt. So this is called in most study Bibles and most commentaries, the parable of the moneylender. And what I found interesting about this is, unlike all the parables that Jesus spoke to the multitudes, And when we were studying the life of Jesus from the Gospels, he would do this both preaching and teaching. Um, In this one, it's addressed to only one man, not a multitude, Simon. And you will see some differences. I'll, I'll tip the scales right now or give it away. He actually applies it. 
The parables that were spoken to crowds, they were left to figure it out, you know, figure out the meaning spiritually in every other way. Here he goes above and beyond that. But don't be fooled that this was addressed to one man. Because it's in the word of God, it's addressed to all of us, everyone who is hearing me right now. And then Jesus says, to which one, which one will love him more? That's his conclusion. And he confronts Simon with a big question. Now, the answer is obvious. And I think at this point, Simon does not yet realize he's being set up by Jesus to learn an uncomfortable truth about himself and all self-righteous people. And I know I qualify as a self-righteous person, so this is coming at me. So having answered, uh, I love Simon's answer. Uh, well, I'm, I'm supposing the one to whom the bigger debt was canceled. The bigger debt, okay? No supposing is needed, right? I think we all knew this. If we even heard it as kids, we knew. Obviously, the one with the bigger debt canceled will love the money lender more and be more grateful to the money lender. So Act 1 ends with these words. But he, Jesus, said to him correctly, rightly so, thou hast judged. So with these words, Jesus confirms what common sense tells most people. So here's the bottom line. Here's the point that we're at at the end of Act 1. Before going on with the specifics of Jesus' encounter with the Pharisee and the prostitute, let's start with this general truth. And I don't think we need Jesus hitting us over the head with it. Those who know the experience of forgiveness in Jesus, those ones love God the most. Okay, so now Act 2 concludes this play in the Pharisee's house. In contrast to his teaching of the multitudes, I've already hinted at this, Jesus pointedly and specifically applies the parable to Simon and pronounces forgiveness to the woman. Okay, the first scene of Act 2 Jesus is one-on-one with the Pharisee here, and he contracts the actions of this Pharisee named Simon and the woman, and he concludes that the woman is forgiven of greater sin and so therefore loves him more than Simon. So let's walk through our narration. And he, having been turned toward the woman... To Simon, he said. So his attention was somewhat on the woman, but now he's sort of leaving her in the background and directly addressing Simon, saying, Are you seeing this woman? I came into thy house. Water for my feet thou did not give, but with tears 
she wet my feet, and with her hair, she dried. So again, we're talking, first of all, about his feet. And unlike the general parables given to the multitudes in Matthew's gospel, Jesus now specifically and uncomfortably applies this one to Simon. First, Simon failed at the most basic aspect of Middle Eastern hospitality. Okay, he did not wash his guests' feet. That was the first requirement. When a guest comes in from the the dirty, dusty roads, you should wash the feet. But this prostitute, she went above and beyond the mere washing of Jesus' feet. She wet them with her tears. Secondly, he says, a kiss. Thou did not give to me. When I entered, but from the very time I entered this room, right after I entered, she has come along and has not stopped kissing my feet. Okay? (laughs) Middle Eastern hospitality, they kiss each other on the cheek when they come in. Simon didn't bother to do that, but she's kissing his feet. And then thirdly, thou did not anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfume on my feet. So Jesus brings up a third aspect of Middle Eastern hospitality, Simon neglected. But again, the prostitute is above and beyond the etiquette of the Middle East. So by now, Simon must begin to be squirming and begin to feel uncomfortable. And also, again, this is just conjecture, but I wonder, is it possible that Jesus is preparing the prostitute for the grace he will soon give to her by earshotting her in all this? He's looking eye to eye with Simon, but he knows she's less than two feet away from him. The narration continues, for which sake I am saying to thee, meaning Simon, her many sins have been forgiven because she loved much. But to he who is being forgiven little, little he is loving. What's this all about? Well, it's about sins forgiven, but Jesus is explaining This prostitute's over-the-top love expressed in service to him, to Jesus, is because she realizes she is a great sinner in need of great forgiveness. In fact, that's how John Newton described his song, Amazing Grace. As he was getting senile, he said, I only remember two things about God. I'm a great sinner. He's a great savior. So she knows she needs forgiveness from God and that it will be in Jesus. However, Jesus is now showing Simon through the parable and through his words. The reason that he failed to show Jesus even minimal hospitality is because Simon sees himself as not much of a sinner. And this caused him 
to have little love to Jesus. But those who know they have been forgiven in Jesus love God the most, as this prostitute did. So now we're ready for the final scene of our play. Jesus tells the woman now outright, her sins are forgiven. This causes all the rest of the dinner guests to question him. And then he tells her, her faith has saved her. So let's take these three points one at a time. We're told then Jesus said to her, they have been forgiven the sins of thee. Here it is. He's talked all around it. He's talked to Simon about it. Finally, Jesus declares to the prostitute that her sins are forgiven. Imagine that. And now she is free to forgive others free to forgive others out of her being filled with love to God for his great forgiveness through Jesus. And I was noticing from the New English Bible, that's how they're interpreting the words, that same interpretation that I'm telling you right here and right now. His love is now in her to enable and empower her to forgive as a result of her being forgiven. That's what that petition, the second petition for our own needs in what we call the Lord's Prayer is all about. Our ability to forgive people who have wronged us is the fruit of knowing with a certainty that we are forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is the fruit of God's forgiveness. But then we're told, secondly, the others eating with him began to say, who is this being who even sins is forgiving? Okay, understand their doubt of Jesus is the opposite of faith. These others at the dinner are not able to forgive because they do not believe that Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins. So at this time in this place, who knows what happened to them after the resurrection and at Pentecost, but right now they do not know this truth that forgiveness is the fruit of God's forgiveness. Not having received God's forgiveness, they can't forgive. But in the absolute last word of this uh, act, this play that we see in Simon's house, Jesus said to the woman, secondly, not only are her sins forgiven now, But the faith of thee has saved thee, and thou must be going in peace. Salvation. Okay. Not just this woman, but all people must be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And what he has done for them on the cross, the empty tomb, and everything that follows. Now, this prostitute has experienced fully for herself the amazing grace of God in Jesus. And then he closes 
with a benediction of commanding her to go in peace. He sends her away with the peace that comes from forgiveness. Okay, this is a great story. Happened 2,000 years ago to one person. Let us all live in the peace of salvation and bring God's love and forgiveness to others so that they too may learn to forgive. I think of one of the greatest problems that's probably in our nation and all around the world is people hold grudges and they can't forgive. We have a task. If we know God's forgiveness and the peace of salvation, we must bring it to others. So here's the bottom line. Here's the climax. All people may be forgiven by the grace of God in Jesus who forgives all who turn to him in faith. And now through God's forgiveness, all may be enabled and empowered to forgive as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. If we get nothing more out of this, I pray the Holy Spirit enables us to be always ready to forgive as we have been forgiven. Forgiveness is the fruit of God's forgiveness. Let me summarize then what we've heard today. While Jesus was eating at the house of a Pharisee, a sinful woman, a prostitute, ministered to him in humility and love. But the Pharisee host was offended. So Jesus told him a parable and made a blunt application to this Pharisee. Before Jesus forgave the woman and declared that her faith had saved her. And I believe he wants all people to know that when God forgives them, they should show great love to him and show it, show it by showing forgiveness to others, forgiveness through humble service to all. Then we are like Jesus. Forgiveness is the fruit of God's forgiveness. And now let us uh, prepare our hearts for communion by singing number 265. Let us break bread together. Oh, Lord, have mercy on 
Now, if there's anyone who's uh, worshiping with us here live who does not yet have a communion kit, uh, this would be the time to go and get it. And then uh, let us all have our, our bulletins ready, the inserts, and we will do the communion responsive reading as it is uh, printed here before us. The table of bread is now to be made ready. It is the table of company with Jesus and all who love him. You who have been here often, and you who have not been for a long time, and you who have tried to follow Jesus, and you who have failed, Loving God, through your goodness, may we know your presence in the sharing so that we may know your touch and presence in all things. Those are powerful words. Um, just think about what it's going to be like when we get together with Jesus and all of our brothers and sisters over 2,000 years. Spiritually, we're celebrating with them now, but it will actually be a physical reality someday. Well, let us pray. Holy Lord God, by what we do here in remembrance of Christ, we celebrate his perfect sacrifice on the cross and his glorious resurrection and ascension. We declare that he is Lord of all and we prepare for his coming kingdom. We pray through you, Holy Spirit, this bread may be for us the body of Christ and this cup the blood of Christ. Accept our sacrifice of praise as we eat and drink at his command. Unite us to Christ as one body in him and give us strength to serve you in the world. And to you, one holy and eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give praise and glory now and forever. Amen. Let us partake of the elements, the bread and the cup. Well, our final song this morning 
is the whole gospel of Jesus Christ in four verses, and it's so appropriate on this Communion Sunday for us to close with this. So let us now sing In Christ Alone.
our benediction follows on that theme. Second um, Corinthians, uh, it's got a lot of short chapters. This is chapter 5, the end of the chapter. I've preached on it at least four times in my life. It's powerful. The Apostle Paul writes to the churches in Corinth, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he is committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. So God, we're entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That says it all. So meditate on this passage throughout the week. And now for our final song, uh, it's all about the love of God, which will motivate our love to him. Number 254, oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, 
He loves you.